Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 113 of Let's Get Haunted. Ooh, haunted. The number 13. If you are new to this show, welcome to Let's Get Haunted, first of all. Second of all, you should know that you can skip the intro to this episode to get straight to the story, which is in the title for this episode. So if you would like to do that, go ahead and expand our show notes on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to and skip to that timestamp and then you don't have to listen to us talk about weird shit going on in our personal lives. That's true and you can skip to that time at any time during this intro if you just want to get straight to the story. However, we don't have that luxury because we have to do an intro. That's right because we like to talk to each other (laughs) sometimes for far too long. So go ahead and skip that. And if you haven't skipped by now, then I'm going to assume you're a hauntie. And we're going to go ahead and talk about some bullshit now. We are very excited to announce that Manscaped has partnered with us again for this episode. Yes. Thank you, Manscaped. If you guys don't know what Manscaped is, you're in luck because we're about to tell you exactly what it is. Manscaped is a company who creates and makes and distributes grooming products for anyone who has hair. We're talking about shavers, electric razors, Mm -hmm. ball deodorizer. These finely tuned products have cutting edge ceramic blades that reduce grooming accidents thanks to advanced skin safe technology. Their Lawnmower 4.0 is easily the greatest ball trimmer on the planet I have heard. Look, this is what I'm going to say about Manscaped. Am I a man? No. Do I have balls? That's for me to know and you to find out. But (laughs) what I will say is I have used these items before on myself Mm -hmm. and I like them a lot and I continue to use them and I find them much more convenient than straight razors, which I had been using for years. What the fuck? Yeah. Okay, we're going to circle back to that (laughs) after this ad read. (laughs) You know, sometimes I don't feel like going to get waxed. I just want to do a, a, a quick straight cleanup. razor to the pussy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems safe. But that's what I'm saying is all these years I was going to CVS, buying a pink razor, paying an exorbitant amount of money for a disposable razor mm-hmm. that's fucked up within right. like a month. Yep. You got to throw it out. It gets dull. It gets clogged. Mm-hmm. It's not doing a good job. Yeah. Now I feel like a whole new world has been open to me because when Manscaped last year sent us their ball trimmers I was like holy shit I'm gonna start using this yeah and it has changed my life I have used it on my armpits used it in my nether regions I think you could probably use it on your head yeah um I don't know haven't tried that yet but I love it. And I want to say the best thing about these products is that they're waterproof. So if That's you right. guys want to try out some of this, if you're like, I don't think they're doing a very good job of explaining what this is, you can go to manscaped.com and insert our code, which is let's get haunted to get 20% off plus free shipping. 20% off plus free shipping, guys. That just saved you a ton of money. You could go to Vegas with your freshly shaved balls and dick and or nether regions whatever you have or don't have and you can go just show it off there look maybe you're smooth down there like a kin doll that's fine too <laughs> you can keep it smooth using manscaped products right. by going to manscaped.com getting one of their ball trimmers and typing let's get haunted as a promo code to get 20 percent off and free shipping what more could you possibly want out of life and if you're completely smooth down there like a ken doll and you don't want anyone to know what a better way to make people think that you're not completely smooth down there right. like a 
a Kindle, then going to manscaped.com, <laughs> entering the code Let's Get Haunted, getting 20% off plus free shipping, and that's then putting right. your Manscaped products out where people can see them. Oh my God, that's so genius. Are yeah. you an alien listening to this right now and your right. species has transcended past the need for having genitals at all? Oh, wow. We're wow. on our way. Good for you. Yeah. You're avoiding a lot of problems <laughs> and congratulations on that. But if you're covertly here, um, maybe the government captured you and now they're monitoring you and right. you're just trying to live your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a show about that called Undercover. Kyle XYZ where yeah. you like, didn't have a belly button or genitals. Right. I could be making that up. Right. Um, but Should you be. know what? He he may have purchased Manscaped right. products and set them out for people to see. Whatever timeline you're living in, whatever simulation you're subscribing to, manscaped.com, enter code Let's Get Haunted and get 20% off plus free shipping. And also, if you guys love to this ad read, let us know in our comments. You can also tell us if we're doing a bad job. That's right. But you know what? Say that we're doing a good job. Make yeah. us feel good. Yeah. Go to our uh, photo dump for this episode at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram and just start tagging Manscaped yes. being like, wow, you made a great decision yeah. sponsoring these two girls. Yeah. All right. Now, this concludes the end of our Manscaped ad. Um, You guys literally do that because I feel like this company, Manscaped, just has a lot of money and they just don't care and they're just throwing it places. So, yeah. like, wh- what? who? They should be throwing it at us, right? Right. And also, I do appreciate that they continually take a chance on us. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. despite the quality of these ad reads. <laughs> so please tell them that it's working, that you've purchased Manscaped products. I'm also being very sincere when I say I do use these products. Yeah. So tag us in, or tag Manscaped in the photo dump for this episode mm-hmm. and just start spamming the shit out of them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, do it. Yep. Natalia, do you have any personal hauntings this episode? Uh, or uh, I don't know. Like, my, I've had a crazy... As Alyssa knows, because she's like heard me vent to her recently, I've had a crazy past few weeks but I don't know that any of it was particularly haunted yeah I I can definitely sympathize sometimes you're going through um a haunted time in your life but it's not gonna be something that's interesting for other people to hear (laughs) it's just like kind of sad but we are we're gonna get through it (laughs) right yeah I agree um what about you do you have any hauntings going on I saw a UFO the other day (gasps) what okay so Wait, was it an ET or an alien? Or we don't know. We, I, I think it was actually a military aircraft, but I'm very interested to hear what military aircraft people think it was because I'd never seen pictures of it before. Mm-hmm. So I don't give a fuck because I'm moving now. So I'll just tell you that I'm like not near Point Magoo, which is like... Uh, like Port Wyneme and Point Magoo, like military exercises get done yeah. there. I'm not like particularly near there. Like you can't see the ocean There's from where I live. There's a huge military base right there. Yeah, but yeah. as the crow flies, if you were to like go over a bunch of mountains, that's where you would end up. Yeah. So late one night I was laying in bed and from the angle of my bedroom, as we talked about in the fire episode, um, the fire intro that we had a couple episodes ago, you can see like the whole sky so you can see the full moon and then I have a random palm tree and there's literally nothing else in the backyard I'm a renter and uh, my landlord did not give a fuck about <laughs> landscaping which I mean why would he he's making fucking bank yeah um so it's literally like a dirt plot uh-huh and so you can see everything it's unobstructed views is my point wow that's how they probably marketed to unobstructed views yeah lay in your bed at night and look out at the patch of dirt <laughs> that we have provided for you and the lone palm tree <laughs> Uh, But I was looking up and I saw a blinking light and blinking lights means that it's like U.S. aircraft. Right. But the thing that was interesting about it 
is it was totally silent, which made me think stealth bomber at first, but it had a weird light pattern on the front. It was triangular. Mm -hmm. It was black, so I couldn't see what it actually looked like. There was a red blinking light on the back. And then the front, this entire triangle of the front was lit up super bright with a white light. And it was just slowly cruising over my backyard. Maybe a stealth bomber has some sort of floodlight technology on the front. I, I don't know, but it, it instantly reminds me of just what you were talking about, the F-117 Nighthawk, which we talked about in the Area 51 episode. I'm showing you a picture of that to jog your memory. Yes, but okay, that whole front part, including the wings, that uh-huh. whole front arrow part of the triangle, right. the Like if you have a triangle, if users are picturing this, literally make your fingers into a triangle. The top two lines that form the point were lit up with a bright white light around the edges. Okay, so it was like a V? Yes, like a white V. And then the back, you couldn't see because it wasn't lit up. And then there was just a red blinking light back there. So, okay, it was like a white V uh, and then a red blinking light near the back. Yes. So... If it wasn't a triangle and it was just like an angle flying, how big would that angle be? Would it be like 45 degrees? Would it be like... Oh, like a stealth bomber. Just, okay. Just like a normal triangle, whatever that degrees is. I don't remember. 45? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So it looked like a bomber, but it had interesting lights. Yeah. So I was wondering, like, do stealth bombers have some sort of modification where they can just have a white floodlight on the front? Anyway, I just thought it was super fascinating. I was laying in bed watching it and it was gliding so smoothly like butter like totally silent making no noise at all and like I said because of the location of the home that I'm renting you frequently you can hear super fucking loud helicopters super fucking loud military aircraft fly over because they're doing exercises and I don't know this one was totally silent yeah I'd be interested because you would think a stealth bomber is supposed to be stealth so like why would it be lit up yeah. Was this just like a fuck you to the U.S. government? Yeah. Like, we're going to light up the stealth bomber and let everyone see it? I don't know. Or maybe it was just like, you know, I don't remember what time it was, but it was something like probably close to 4 a.m. Maybe they're just thinking like, no one's fucking up at this time. Like, no one's awake. Yeah. Let's just turn on all the floodlights and like see what's down there. Oh, wow. I don't know. So, okay, sorry. I misunderstood. Are you saying that the plane had floodlights coming off of it that were so bright that you you it was like illuminating some of the surface of the earth i couldn't tell from my angle because i was looking up at it but it was very bright okay because i was just imagining like you know the strips of glow that are like the airport or the airplane aisles are next to. so it wasn't like glow lines it was like lights it was light oh yeah okay interesting because i was gonna say perhaps it was a signal like follow this arrow well maybe i should have gotten (laughs) out of my bed and started running after it who is to say but if we have any military folks or aviation enthusiasts out there that listen to our show Mm -hmm. i don't know leave a comment on the photo dump because i would love to hear your hypotheses on what military aircraft i saw yeah that's really interesting yeah did you have a feeling like this was a uh a military aircraft or did you think that it was perhaps of otherworldly no i definitely think because of my proximity to like the military base mm-hmm. and also because of the red blinking light on the back i definitely think it was of this earth 
Have you heard of the conspiracy that there is a like underwater base off of Point Magoo? Yes. Yeah. And there's like tons like surfers around that area and people who spend time out by the ocean there will constantly see UFOs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the reason I know this is because I can't, I think it was like James DeAngelis or someone in that group's birthday. Uh They were having some sort of party at some. Oh, yes. That's James. He loves that beach. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They were, well, no, it wasn't him. He was having some sort of party at some bar in the valley and I went to it. And I, when I went to go get a drink from the bar, at this time I was still single, by the way. I went to go get a drink at the bar. Uh, there was a very interesting person next to me who, I can't remember how we got on the subject, but they started talking to me about UFOs that they saw oh. while they were surfing off of Point Magoo and how everyone knows in that area. It's just like a well-known thing that you see UFOs all the time. Interesting. Perhaps it's because there's a base there, uh, a U.S. base. Perhaps it's because there's an under water alien base alien base i don't know maybe we should do an episode on it i think we should um wow well now i'm gonna have to really think about it maybe it was a ufo or uap but they put a red blinking light on the back to throw me off that's true wait remind me what uap stands for unidentified aerial phenomenon it's Uh, what we use now instead of ufo like the government because they the word ufo was too like triggering right and associated with like it was too Whatever. crazy people. Yeah, it was yeah. loaded. They were like, no, people who see UFOs and UFO enthusiasts, which I totally disagree with, are like all crazy people. and We don't want to be associated with them. So we're going to form this task force, this task force that uh, investigates UAP sightings. Mm. It's just an unidentified aerial phenomenon. It mm. doesn't mean it's from outer space or like some other dimension. Could be something that was created on this earth, like a weather balloon, but we still need to investigate it because it flies into our airspace and we don't know what it is. Mm. So that was like their cover for investigating UFOs. Interesting. But some people have really embraced that new terminology because it is more scientific. And they're like, yeah, let's call them UAPs so that the government takes us seriously and starts disclosing some of the fuck shit going on in our atmosphere. Wow. Yeah. I mean, whatever is the right thing to do, just let me know, people, and I'll do it. Yeah. Don't punish me because I don't understand. Just tell me. You want me to say UFO? (laughs) You want me to say UAP? Which is evil? Which is good? They're the same. (laughs) They're the same. In my opinion, they're exactly the same. It's just that the government decided UFO was too loaded of a word. I'm just picturing another podcast like 10 years from now replaying this episode and that snippet and being like, yeah, that didn't age well. You have to understand, (laughs) back in 2022, this was, you know. Yeah, UFO didn't mean, um, you know, whatever. UFO didn't mean that we don't think aliens deserve rights. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Well, Natalia, are you ready to get into this week's episode? Sure am. On the morning of August 7th, 1994, it began to rain in the small town of Oakville, Washington. With a population of only 665 residents, Oakville was the kind of town where everyone knew everyone. Located about an hour and a half southwest of Seattle, the town was very tiny with a total area of only 0.55 square miles or 1.43 square kilometers. Wait a second. Hold on. Say those dimensions again. Half a square mile. Okay. So if we were to walk half a mile... In all directions. In all directions. That's how big it is? Yeah, it's small. That's so dumb. Wait, why? (laughs) Why is it so small? 
That's just the way it was parceled up. And speaking of its origins, so originally owned by the British, the open prairie land that would later become Oakville was given to the United States in 1846. According to the book From Lower Ford's Prairie to Poverty Flats, Stories of Some of the White Settlers of the Oakville Area by Kelly A. Davis, the Oakville area was occupied by only a few Native American tribes who actually coexisted with the few white settlers living in the area. Now, is this a whitewashing of the actual history? Is this inaccurate? I don't know because I'm not a historian, so I am just taking this historian at her word. But if anyone knows more information, feel free to comment it on the photo dump for this episode, which you can find at Let's Get Haunted. But from this book, Kelly A. Davis writes that the Native Americans actually showed the settlers how to help maintain the prairie, teaching them how to set controlled yearly fires to keep the forest from encroaching. In 1870, James Reed Harris, the leader of a party of families relocating from Illinois to Washington, arrived in the area and applied for a post office. After much discussion with those living in the area, the name for the town was chosen to be Oakville after the Oregon white oaks that grow in the area. Hmm. According to Wikipedia, the post office was opened in 1873, and soon the booming industries of logging and railroad construction brought even more settlers to Oakville. Officially incorporated in 1905, by the turn of the century, a Northern Pacific train station had been established in the city, and the area had several general stores, a new school, and a couple of hotels. In 1909, a report by the Railroad Commission of Washington described Oakville as follows, quote, Oakville is a town of about 400 inhabitants. Located on the line of the Northern Pacific Trailer, in the center of an important lumber district, the timber resources of this section are of immense value and the bottom lands are well adapted to general farming. Oakville is a growing town and will develop more rapidly as the resources of the surrounding district are more thoroughly exploited. Apart from lumber, several other factories and businesses were established in Oakville during this time. The E.H. Hilton & Co. Oiled Clothes Factory opened in 1915, the Oakville Cooperative Cheese Company opened in 1919, and a library, jewelry store, shoe company, hardware store, and a newspaper were also established shortly thereafter. In 1909, Oakville State Bank was opened in the area, and its claim to fame was that it was the last bank in Washington to be robbed by a rider on horseback. That's its claim to fame. That's its claim to fame. And in fact, people have embraced this piece of history so much that every few years, the city of Oakville holds a competition where different groups can sign up to reenact the robbery with a prize going to the group that gives the best performance. That's great. Isn't that amazing? I like this town. It's like a small town, right? I think currently there's like 760 people or something yeah, like that. Yeah, a small historic town. Yeah. That has like a kind of a quirky history. Totally. And they're not only are they acknowledging it, they're sort of encouraging it. And I love towns that interact with the community. Like they're, you know, like you were talking about the mule days or whatever. Yeah. During the Einfield Horror episode. Yes. Um, I really think that's something that's like really cool, especially when you come from a small town. Those types of things are so exciting. It's like, oh, the 4th of July parade this year. Yeah. It's something to look forward to. And you know what? It's interesting you mentioned 4th of July because this robbery reenactment 
normally takes place around July 4th every year. Oh, it's yeah. I mean, it sounds like the perfect Americana thing. Like, yeah. let's go out, get some fucking collapsible lawn chairs, make some lemonade, and watch a reenactment. Totally. Yeah, this is definitely like a Wild West town, right? Mm-hmm. Like a former Wild West town. Lots of logging, lots of factories. And that's kind of what I picture when I think of like people riding around on horses. And in fact, someone on a horse robbed this bank. <laughs> so... It's definitely a a Wild West prairie, like covered wagon type situation comes from that sort of history. I like that. As to the geography of the area, the Oakville area is subject to annual flooding, sometimes up to twice a year, with the last major floods having been recorded in 1996 and 2007 due to the town's location on the northern shore of the Chehalis River. To its north, Oakville is bordered by the hills of the Capital State Forest, which consists of many beautiful forests, valleys, mountains, beaver dams, and ponds. Oakville, Washington gets around 52 inches of rain on average per year, with rain falling on at least 149 days out of the year. So although August 7, 1994 was summertime, it was not unusual for a heavy rainfall to wash over the Oakville area. But... As Oakville resident Beverly Roberts lay awake in her bed, listening to the pitter-patter of the rain, she noted that it somehow sounded denser than usual. She turned and looked at the red glow of her alarm clock on her nightstand. It was 3 a.m. She rolled over and went back to sleep. Meanwhile, Officer David Lacey was on patrol at 3 a.m. Driving his cop car up and down the streets of the sleepy town with a civilian friend in his passenger seat doing a ride-along. The rain came down lightly at first, but soon picked up to a full-on downpour. Lacey switched on his wipers. But as he and his passenger continued chatting, they both began to notice something strange. Rather than the wipers clearing the rain from the windshield, it appeared to be smearing something thickly across the glass, obscuring their vision. Not sure what was happening, Lacey initially assumed that there must be something wrong with his windshield wipers. And he slowly coasted into the nearest gas station to examine his vehicle and clear the windshield by hand. He unbuckled his seatbelt, opened his door, and used his flashlight to illuminate the glass. But instead of rainwater, there appeared to be a dense layer of clear goo smeared all across his vehicle. Baffled, Lacey put on a pair of latex gloves before attempting to touch the substance. No! Have they never seen a movie? Like, the the cop that sees something strange happening and then at 3 a.m. and then gets out and turns on a flashlight, like, might as well just fucking kill themselves right that yeah. moment. Because it can't be good. There's no, Well, there's no way it can be good. And actually, Lacey would later say in an interview that he and his passenger kind of looked at each other and they were like, something's not right here. But keep in mind, he's on patrol. This is his job. He's on the clock and he needs to keep doing his job. So he can't 
keep driving with all of this goo obscuring his vision, so he needs to clear it off so that he can continue his shift. Quote, the substance was almost mushy, Lacey would later say of the goop. It's almost like if you had jello in your hand and, you know, you could pretty much squish it through your fingers. Unsure of what to do and with his windshield wipers useless against the clear muck, Lacey had no choice but to drive his car back to the police station and wait until the morning to tell his superior about the issue. So he's literally the only guy on duty that oh, night. Oh, wow. Later that morning around 7 a.m., the downpour ceased and the clouds began to clear as Oakville resident Dottie Hearn stepped outside her front door to retrieve the daily newspaper from her driveway. Looking down at her wooden porch, she suddenly stopped in her tracks. There seemed to be an odd, clear goo reflecting sunlight back at her all across the walkway. She reached out and touched the goo, rubbing it between her fingers. The blobs were small, about the size of a grain of rice, and they felt vaguely sticky in her hands. It looked like hail, Dottie described, laying on top of the wood box and everywhere else. So I just went over and I touched it and it wasn't hail. It was a gelatinous-like material. Perplexed, the elderly resident retrieved her newspaper and shuffled back inside her home. The goo had stuck to the bottom of her slippers and she had to remove them so as to not track whatever it was onto her carpets. She continued her daily routine as usual, but a few hours later, she suddenly began to feel unwell. I started feeling dizzy, she said. Everything started moving around and around, and it got worse. And as it did, I became increasingly nauseated. Feeling as though she was going to vomit, Dottie tried to sit up from the armchair where she was working on a crossword. But as she stood up, the room began to spin even more violently around her. Dottie lowered herself onto the floor and began to army crawl across the carpet toward the toilet. But before she could reach the bathroom, she passed out completely. She doesn't know how long she remained unconscious, but a few hours later, Dottie's daughter and son became worried when she wasn't answering their phone calls. Using their spare key to enter the home, they encountered Dottie sprawled out in the living room, mere feet from the bathroom door. She was cold, drenched in perspiration and pale, Dottie's daughter, Sunny Barcliffe, recalled. My mom had been vomiting. She had extreme vertigo. She complained that she had difficulty with her vision. Her vision was blurring. With her mother falling in and out of consciousness, Sunny wasted no time in calling her mother an ambulance for immediate transport to the local hospital. As the paramedics trudged up the walk and strapped her mother onto a stretcher, Sunny noticed the odd, clear jelly balls scattered all across her mother's porch, yard, and driveway. The whole scene was bizarre and nonsensical to her. But as she was more concerned about her mother, she did not stop to examine the substance. Once under the care of the hospital staff, Dottie was eventually diagnosed during her three-night stay with a severe inner ear infection. What? During Dottie's first day of recovery in hospital, 
Sunny could not get the image of the strange gooey blobs out of her head. Returning to her mother's home with a cup, Sunny scooped up some of the gelatinous material into it, careful not to make contact against her skin. Sunny then drove back to the hospital with the sample in tow and explained her hunch to her mother's doctor. Could this substance have made her mother ill? The doctor handed the cup of goop to a nearby nurse, who in turn ran it over to the hospital laboratory for analysis. Although Sunny thought she had been careful not to make direct contact with the goo while scooping it and transporting the sample, she too eventually came down with a flu-like illness that lasted between four to eight weeks before she even felt normal again. Four to eight weeks? Meanwhile, the same morning that Dottie had rubbed the perplexing goo in her fingers before fainting, Officer Lacey had settled down for a nap following his red-eye shift the night before. When he awoke in the afternoon, his head was throbbing. He felt foggy and confused. It was to the point where I could hardly breathe, he stated. I started to put together that, possibly, whatever the substance was, it made me violently sick, you know, and ill, like I had never been before, to the point where it just totally shut me down. Short of breath, dizzy, and confused, he decided to go to a local clinic for treatment. At the clinic, the doctor was confused by the severity of his symptoms, but ultimately diagnosed the policeman with a bad flu and sent him home to rest. A few days later, the results from the hospital laboratory were in. The goo that Dottie's daughter Sunny had brought to them had been successfully analyzed, but the results only added more mystery. The goop contained human white blood cells. Alarmed, the hospital, following protocol, immediately sent what was left of the material to the Washington State Department of Health, along with a brief narrative of where it had come from and what the hospital's preliminary analysis had revealed. Once the sample reached Washington State Department of Health, it was handed off to Mike McDowell, a microbiologist employed with the DOH. It was very uniform, he noted in an interview to Unsolved Mysteries in 1997. There was no structure that we could see visibly or with a microscope. I set it up on various microbiological media and attempted to isolate bacteria. What McDowell found astounded him. There were two species of bacteria inside the clear jelly. One of these bacteria is only found inside the human digestive system. In an interview with National Geographic... This is gross as hell. They were just touching this stuff? I mean, what would you do if their car is covered in a goo? You have to get it off somehow. Which part of the human digestive system? Are we talking about the poop part or like the food part? Well, the whole digestive system is a poop part. It all no. breaks it down and turns it into poop, right? No, like your stomach isn't is fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, OK, so your mouth is part of the digestive system. Would you consider your mouth like a poop thing? I guess not. Yeah, but it wasn't from that part. So it would have been from either the stomach or intestines. I'm not sure which. Which I don't know why, but to me, if it was from the intestines, it's more gross than if it was from the stomach. That's interesting because the stomach is full of acid and bile. So when you throw up, you're throwing up stomach contents. That's less gross to you than... Would you rather be thrown up on or pooped on? Neither. I'm going to be real with you. (laughs) 
I would rather be thrown up on. I don't know why. There's like an avert, like I have like a natural aversion to poop. Yeah. Well, good. I think that's healthy. I think that's probably a survival <laughs> mechanism that happened through a millennia of uh, evolution. Where with like vomit, I feel like just, you know, growing up and going to college and all of that, like I've been very near other people's vomit many times. I've helped people vomit. I've gotten their vomit on me. And I was just like, you know what? I'm being a good person right now. But if that person had gotten their poop on me, I wouldn't feel as forgiving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can sympathize with that. Well, in an interview with National Geographic, McDowell stated the following. We found two organisms, Pseudomonas fluorescence and Enterobacter cloquet. These organisms could lead to severe illness in humans. So they got like food poisoning sort of from the goo. They got, we're not sure at this point right. what's happened to them. All we know is that this mysterious goo falls from the sky and it seems like everyone who comes into contact with the goo is getting the same or similar symptoms. Even if they had a glove between them and the goo or thought they didn't touch it. So perhaps it's like respiratory or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. They all kind of report this dizziness, this fever, feeling flushed, confused, um, having trouble with their equilibrium. So it sounds like whatever they're coming down with, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Over the next three weeks, the crystal clear jelly blobs would rain down on Oakville six more times. During this period of time, dozens of citizens were admitted to nearby hospitals with the same or similar symptoms. Dizziness, nausea, vomiting, headache, fever, and confusion. In fact, up to 20 square miles around Oakville, surrounding towns also began to experience the same symptoms. Local veterinarians also reported an uptick in strange flu-like symptoms in, in cats and dogs in the area, with many pets ultimately dying after eating or playing in the blobs. Farmers also reported their livestock becoming ill and dying during this time. I'm now going to play a short audio clip from two interviews conducted by Unsolved Mysteries with Oakville citizens for you. This is so weird. I got sick, my wife got sick, my daughter, uh, everybody that lived here got sick. Everybody in the whole town came down with like a flu, only it was a really hard flu. It didn't last like seven days, it lasted like seven weeks, two or three months. Natalia, what do you think of what these witnesses so far have described? I think this is really strange. I mean, my first thought is that perhaps it's like a government thing, you know, like an MK Ultra situation or like a PSYOP where they are uh, unknowingly dumping some sort of material on these residents. I mean, not unknowingly, they're knowingly dumping materials on these residents as some sort of like experiment or something like that mm -hmm. but then i'm kind of confused because people in neighboring towns are also getting sick i don't get it i don't understand it's very confusing and i think as it's happening in real time to these citizens they're all just as confused as well and for us like looking back at the situation, hearing this story unfold in a narrative order, mm -hmm. I think your hypothesis comes to my mind first too. Like, okay, someone's fucking with this town. But as something's happening to you, I don't think that even occurs to you. You're just like, and this is before the internet too. Mm -hmm. 
So they can't really compare notes. There's no Nextdoor app. Nobody can post and be like, here's a picture of this crazy goo I found on my car. Like mm-hmm. everyone's experiencing this by themselves and they just don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Once Dottie Hearn was released from the hospital and returned to her home, she apprehensively watched the blobs falling from the sky during the next three weeks. She was unsatisfied with her diagnosis of an inner ear infection and did not trust the Washington State Department of Health to analyze the sample her daughter had brought them. Finally, around the fourth time the goo rained down on the town, she made the decision to collect another sample and store it in her freezer. I really like her. She's a haunty for I know, sure, she right? She is too. She's like, oh, 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 no, they told me that everything was fine and I can't trust them. And I know, yeah, she trusted her intuition, right? Yeah. She was like, you know what? I've been around the block. I've been alive for many decades. The doctor is like blowing me off, telling right. me it's not a big deal. Nobody else in the town seems concerned. But I know this is fucking weird. Why is it raining goo six times? Yeah, I don't trust Big Doctor. Carefully, meticulously, Dottie made sure not to make direct contact with the goo as she scooped it up into a small Tupperware, sealed it, and placed it at the back of her freezer. Over a year later, with still no satisfying answers from the Department of Health, Dottie sent this frozen sample to a private research lab, AmTest Laboratories, for analysis. The results from that lab were somehow even more confusing. The sample contained a eukaryotic cell, a complex nucleus-containing cell found in most living creatures. The presence of this cell meant that the jelly was either alive or had been alive at one time. In a document written by Sunny Barcliffe, where she disputed some of the misinformation about the incident being reported in the media, she wrote the following... It is my understanding that after the fallout, several people in the community did come down with a flu-like illness that lasted for four to eight weeks in some cases. A couple that stick out in my mind were two individuals who had complications associated with kidney infection or kidney involvement, which I think is somewhat unusual. I did not go door-to-door and interview people as to the state of their health. Mostly, the information gleaned was during casual conversations and overhearing statements made by others. I have no idea about what each person's personal diagnosis was. Communally, it was thought to be something like the flu. Some individuals, such as my mother Dottie Hearn and David Lacey, the police officer, had more acute symptoms. When my mother first found the substance on top of a box on the porch where she stored her wood for burning, She touched the substance with her bare hands. Although David Lacey said he wore gloves, he too became very ill within hours of contact with the substance. Initially, my mother was treated for Meniere's disease, a disorder of the inner ear. She had extreme vertigo, dizziness, and felt the room spinning. Those are all symptoms of that disease. However, she also had a fever and other symptoms of infection, She spent four days in the hospital. Upon her release, I asked Dr. Little what her discharge diagnosis was. He shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know, some type of virus. She did have a complete recovery after she arrived home and over time. Meniere's disease usually manifests as an ongoing problem, but she never had the symptoms ever again. 
It is interesting to note that my mother had a plethora of outdoor cats used as mousers in the barns and such. Gradually, over the following months, some of those cats also died or went missing. In time, the remaining cats were able to build up a healthy population again. Dr. Little was the attending physician on duty when my mother arrived by ambulance at McCleary Hospital. I had brought a sample of the substance to the hospital and explained to Dr. Little that less than 24 hours earlier, my mother had made contact with the substance, and since we didn't know what it was, I asked if he would be willing to do a lab test on it. He agreed, and a lab technician did a routine lab exam. That is when the white blood cell was found. Dr. Little was intrigued by it, but baffled as we were. My best recollection is that the name of the lab tech who conducted this test on the goo was known as Kelly, but I do not know her last name. Once my mother had pointed out the substance to myself and my brother, we decided to wear gloves because it was an unknown substance. My background is in occupational safety and health, so I opted to wear gloves as a precaution. It is important to note that the gel-like substance, which was clear, no color at all, and about the size of rice grains, was literally everywhere. In the grass, on foliage, on my truck window. We probably would not have even noticed them, as they would have only appeared as drops of water, had my mother not found them on the wood box. She initially thought they were hail. They were not liquid and had mass and were three-dimensional. I became mildly nauseated a week or so after the first fallout. I became acutely ill with severe bronchitis six weeks post the initial fallout. My kitten died on or around mm. the third day of the fallout. No. It has been reported on some websites that the kitten had digestive problems prior to the fallout, but that is not true. Both of my mother's dogs fell ill three weeks after the first fallout. Nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. The vet said that they had an infection and they were treated with antibiotics. It is important to note at this point that the fallout of gel was not a single occurrence, but instead was a series of six fallouts over three weeks. All were documented by my mother in her journal. There were rumors that some nearby farms experienced death of larger animals such as horses and cows, but I did not investigate those allegations. No. I was concerned about the material and spoke with Dr. Kobayashi at the Washington State Health Laboratory. He advised me to send a sample of the material. I mailed a sample to the Washington State Health Lab, which was assigned to Mike McDowell, one of their epidemiologists on staff. Mike initially set the gel up on bacterial media to see if it would grow anything. It grew two types of bacteria, Pseudomonas fluorescens and Entero Enterobacter colocae. The gel specimen was locked in a medium containment facility, and over time, Mike continued to research it. At some point, he drew the conclusion that the material itself was man-made and was being used as a matrix, a vehicle capable of transporting a virus or bacteria. He did report his findings to his supervisor. When he returned to the lab at some point, he discovered the substance was missing. Again, he reported this to his supervisor and was advised at that point to not ask any more questions. Mike is retired now and still does occasional interviews regarding this subject. I trust his judgment and his findings as he was a credible expert in the field. Mike was interviewed four or five years ago on a program on the National Geographic Channel and the information about the substance missing was revealed in that program. 
I suspect he was reluctant to speak of it while still employed. He states that it was the first time in 30 years of service with his job that a sample he was responsible for had gone missing. I was contacting as many agencies as possible to find assistance in identifying the substance. I took a sample to Mike Osweiler. Mike Osweiler worked for the Department of Ecology. The department concluded that it was an organic material. They determined they did find a cell with a nucleus, which indicated to them that it was biological. The cell could have been a bacteria, it was never specified. Over the years, I have held some information close to me. Very little about it has been released to the press. However, two years ago, some information surfaced on the internet that led me to the conclusion that the Oakville event was in fact a continuity exercise conducted by the military. Sonny Barcliffe. In 1997, when Unsolved Mysteries decided to cover the phenomenon, they reached out to the Washington Department of Health to see if they could produce the records of their goo analysis for the show, or, alternatively, produce their sample of the goo for Unsolved Mysteries to send out for analysis. Interestingly, the DOH responded to Unsolved Mysteries by saying that they could no longer find the samples in question and also had no records of what had happened to the blobs. In an interview with National Geographic, the Department of Health lab, lab microbiologist Mike McDowell spoke about the disappearance of the samples, saying, I came in and the material was not where it was supposed to be. I asked management, what happened to it? And the exact words were, do not ask. <gasps> and that is the story of the Oakville Blobs incident. That's it? Well, we're going to get into the theories, but before we get into the theories, I just want to know, like, what are you thinking about this story in general? What do you mean, do not ask? What are they going to do? Like, hurt you? Like, no, I'm going to ask. Why Why didn't they just, why is the story in there? It should be like, and so then I asked. What do you mean, don't ask? Well, I think when you're working for a government agency and your superior says, stop fucking talking about this, like, the stakes are higher than if you're working at, like, Burger King and your supervisor's like... Hey, don't ask why we're out of buns, right? Like, oh, that's true, and uh, or even higher than working at like you know uh, like a, law a, a law firm. Yeah. It's weird that you were gonna say that because I was literally I was like, okay, let me think of like a white collar job. Yeah, that, uh, and I was like, an law IT firm. professional. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, because the law firm isn't like this entity that could ruin your life. Yeah. I mean, I guess they could if they really wanted to because they're lawyers, but yeah. the government is more likely as we know. But also I'm thinking like of, for example, when I was in high school and I worked at the mall, if I like had a question about like, hey, how come these shirts don't have the correct barcode on them. If my supervisor was like, don't ask, I think I'd just be like, all right, like I don't care enough right. to keep asking. Right. Right. I'd just be like, okay, that's not what they pay me for. I'm here to literally just fold shirts and that's fine with me. You know? <laughs> right. So there's two possibilities. One is like a fear of wanting to keep the job and the other one is like, I don't give a fuck about this job. Exactly. Yeah. In either case, I don't think I would, I would push right. it. But when Mike McDowell eventually retires from this job is when he starts giving these interviews to National Geographic and to other outlets where he's like, look, they told me I'm not supposed to talk about it. This is a crazy story is what I'm thinking. Like, I can't believe I haven't heard of this before. And I'm also trying to 
hypothesize what this could be. Like, is this part of some sort of living organism? Is each one of those little rice pieces like a spaceship for a virus? Um, is this supposed to be just like a fucked up experiment? Is this a psyop? What is happening here? I don't know. I know. It's crazy. So we're going to go into the theories for what this could have been. And since this happened in the 90s, this is a topic that, like I said, only a couple years after it happened, Unsolved Mysteries, which is a huge TV show, was already covering it. Mm -hmm. Then after Unsolved Mysteries covers it, we have like the advent of the internet, where all of these people now are able to talk about it online. Different articles are being written. For the first time ever, people are reaching out to interview some of the witnesses to the incident. Then National Geographic gets involved. And now we're finally getting like an online communal dialogue of what this could have been. We were both born in the 90s, but we were very young before the internet became a thing. So I can't imagine how frustrating it would be to experience something weird and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. You know, like maybe you go tell your local newspaper, but if they don't want to cover the story, they just don't cover it. Right. Theory number one, human waste from an airliner. This was the first theory considered by the Washington State Department of Health due to the fact that the bacteria from the human digestive system was found in the goo. At first, this theory seemed promising. However, when the DOH reached out to the Federal Aviation Administration, they learned that this was actually impossible. All human waste mixes in a tank in the airplane containing a distinctive blue dye before it is expelled from the plane. Therefore, whatever this clear jelly was could not be waste from an airliner. Hold on. Are you telling me that airplanes just fucking drop their shit tanks in the sky while they're flying? Yes, I am telling you that. So, okay, I'm so glad you brought this up. So most of the time when airliners drop their fucking shit waste water... It actually evaporates because they're so high up. It evaporates before it hits the ground. And it's actually illegal to dump it over certain areas. I think like densely populated areas, especially, it's like illegal. So most of the time it'll be dumped over the ocean, which is also fucked. But it evaporates before it hits normally. But that's so scary. Okay, because when you go like pee in the bathroom and you hear like you press the thing and it's like it's literally like no i just thought that that was like an airlock or something that's like sucking it in so that like uh it doesn't i don't know like you don't get like stuff all over you but you're telling me that my fears of being sucked out of the plane through the toilet is actually could happen well first of all i will say i share that fear with you but i also hate flying with a passion so I don't know that it would really make a difference to me, but I used to be so afraid that I would not flush the toilet. Like I would pee and I would just not flush the toilet. I'd be like, this is a problem for the next guy. But that's actually not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that first it has to mix with a blue dye. Right. But then once the tank is full, it's released. Oh, okay. So if my like flush was the one flush that was full, then it could possibly be. Yeah. But most likely it's not. And speaking of this, I want to show you what it looks like when this type of human airplane waste accidentally hits a town instead of like the ocean or instead of evaporating because there have been some examples and I'm going to show you a picture and I'm going to explain to you the context. If you guys want to see this photo, you can go to at let's get haunted on Instagram. Natalia, can you describe what you're looking at? Why the fuck are they touching that with their hands? Okay. I'm looking at Um, A bunch of men. It looks like one of them's wearing a hard hat, perhaps, uh, and like flannel shirts. 
kneeling, crouching on the ground, holding on to like a big blue piece of, it honestly looks like plastic. And they're like, some of them are um, like taking photos of it with their phones and stuff. And I'm like, they, they're kind of like presenting it as if it's like a, a fish they caught, you know? That is a perfect description. And this is an unfortunate situation where someone who, where a group of men who did not realize that this is what human waste from an airplane looks like, saw this fall from the sky and thought it was like a meteor or a comet. So they think they've found something like really priceless and maybe like they're going to get some money for it. And they are like fighting over pieces of this human waste, taking pictures with it. And then eventually they realize it's just shit and pee. Yeah, it doesn't look like that. It looks like bright blue. It looks like hypnotic. The I don't know if they still make it, but there was this liquor. Yeah, yeah, they still make it. Yeah, it looks like a hypnotic slushy. Yes. That's like calcified. Like it's hard blue plasticky looking. Yeah. And it's actually nicknamed blue ice because it does kind of look like this weird blue plasticky. It's very bright, exaggerated blue. And the reason why the FAA requires that is so people don't pick it up. But obviously the information doesn't reach everybody. Like, you know, yeah, I've never heard that. Yeah. So this is a comparison of what we think the Oakville blobs looked like on one side. I'm showing not two photos uh-huh. compared to the blue ice. Okay, so the Oakville blob kind of looks like if you took a picture of a toad in mud and then you like pixelated it, it looks it looks weird. It doesn't I was expecting the blobs to look clear, like I was picturing a clear orby, but this individual looks like it's uh like it's dirty like it looks like the color of like it's like been in mud and dirt and stuff i don't know yeah well it is clear i think what you're seeing is the background because it's on the ground so maybe like the background dirt is kind of reflecting through it Mm. um but to me it almost looks like when you like have to go get an ultrasound on your ovaries or like if you've ever been pregnant maybe like when you had to go get an ultrasound for your baby for those of us who aren't pregnant like they are looking at your shit and trying to figure out why it's fucked and they put this clear blue lube jelly on the end of the wand yeah to me it looks slightly more dense than that Mm. but kind of the same if you've ever watched somebody like squirt it out onto the wand so that to me is what it looks like versus the blue ice is much more solid and unfortunate that these men have touched it. But maybe none of them got sick. So really, who's the real right. like people who fucked up in this situation? I guess the people who touched the Oakville blobs. OK, so that was theory number one. I think we've successfully ruled it out, right? There's right. no way that could be airliner waste. Theory number two. This is very haunted. A school of jellyfish blown up in a Navy bombing exercise. But it happened six times. Okay, let's stick with it. Let's suspend our disbelief and hear what this is. Okay. This was the second theory considered by the private laboratory that analyzed Dottie's frozen sample. It is alleged that the U.S. Navy had been conducting bombing exercises over the Pacific Ocean around this time. And I want to say, I one source said U.S. Navy, one said U.S. Air Force. I've combined them both, both in this theory. Maybe they were working together. I don't know. Oakville is 50 miles east from the Pacific coast. This theory alleges that during these bombing exercises, the Navy could have unknowingly been dropping bombs on schools of jellyfish causing jellyfish debris to fly or spray straight up into the atmosphere and become evaporated into the clouds. 
But the, where does the digestive system from humans come from? I, I cannot answer that question. But I can say that proponents of this theory think that the debris could have then been carried east to Oakville, fallen on the town with the rain, and then continued to fall on the town every time it rained until it was like the clouds were emptied of that jellyfish material. Unsolved Mysteries reached out to the Air Force to see if they had been in the area during this time, and the Air Force did confirm that they were likely conducting bombing exercises over the Pacific in August of 1994, but they denied any involvement in the creation of the substance and denied bombing any schools of jellyfish. Now, how would they know? How would they know? I know that's my thing, but they obviously don't want to get in trouble. So they're like, we didn't see any jellyfish. Right. No, that wasn't us. So those are like points for this theory. Points against this theory. People point out that if this really was from a jellyfish, then it should have started smelling gross and fishy oh, and right. rancid. Yeah, because it's like rotting jellyfish. Exactly. And especially because it rained down over a three-week period six times. Like at least by the sixth time, it should have started smelling. And also as it's laying on the ground, it should have started smelling. But what people reported in the area was actually that the little Orbeez, this little Oakville blobs, after a couple days, it would just absorb into the ground. Whereas a jelly, you would think a jellyfish, part of a jellyfish would not do that, right? right. In an article for Medium.com by Nicole Henley, Henley writes, Although not many people believe this particular theory as the answer, it nonetheless became so popular within the community that it prompted the discussion of holding a jellyfish festival in the town. Even leading to the concoction of a new drink in honor of the strange incident, the drink in question was dubbed the jellyfish and was comprised of vodka, gelatin, and juice. The people in this town are just having a great time, I'll say. They're making lemonade from lemons sip it on gelatin and juice and having a grand old flag of a time. Well, I mean, that combined with the fact that they made a, a, a day out of reenacting this like horse robbery of their bank. And now they have made a drink to celebrate this uh, gelatinous thing that happened to them. It makes me feel like this is just a group of people who are, you know, Looking for uh, a, maybe a, a tourist poll? Yeah, I yeah. don't know. Who knows? I don't know. But they're definitely, like you said, you know, making making something out of a bad situation, like making a good thing from a bad situation. Yeah. So some people who are skeptics of this theory say that's really fucking far-fetched. What are the odds that like jellyfish would have been blown up, flown into the atmosphere, traveled 50 miles east and rained down on a town? However... There are examples of it raining weird shit around the world due to tornadoes or hurricanes picking things up from the ocean, ponds, or other bodies of water, and later raining those objects down on towns. And actually, on the Nextdoor app in my neighborhood, earlier this year, some guy posted that it rained shrimp in the neighborhood. He was like a neighboring area, like not my area. Are you serious? And he posted a photo, and I'm going to show it to you. Let me load it. What kind of shrimp? Little, little, little tiny. Like little tiny. It almost looks like, I don't know, like super tiny shrimp, krill, whatever. Here, you can take my phone and zoom in. I'm showing Nat a picture that I'm going to post to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. This is alarming to me. So I'm looking at a picture of uh, what looks like uh, this concrete. And uh, there's like little... 
I don't know what those are. Is that a shrimp? I don't know. It looks like a dead cricket type thing and it's gross looking and it's scary. And then um, it says, okay, I'm done. It's time to move to Mars. This morning I found my yard covered with thousands of tiny shrimp. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I hate this idea. Yeah, it's fucking terrifying. And it happened like nearby to where I currently live. And so I remember seeing that. This was months ago. I did not know I was going to do this story at that time. But I fucking screenshotted it because I was like, this is haunted. And then I forgot to talk about it in the intro of our, one of our episodes. Fortunately, because now I get to talk about it in this episode. Yeah, what a weird... Yeah, that's... I really don't like that. So weird. And there are other examples of stuff like this happening throughout history. For example, in an article entitled The Day It Rained Fish in Providence, written by the New England Historical Society, the author, which is the New England Historical Society, writes, quote, It rained fish in Singapore on February 22, 1861, in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, on July 1, 1903, and in Marksville, Louisiana, on October 23, 1947. In fact, two dozen instances of raining fish have been recorded since the day Singaporeans found fish flapping around in puddles for the first time. In Yoro, Honduras, people say it rains fish at least once a year in either May or June during a large storm. They call it lluvia de peces. Fish aren't the only thing that have rained. Spiders, frogs, no. toads, snakes... And bats have all come raining down on a surprised populace. Rats once reigned in Norway, crabs in England, and toads on Napoleon's army. In 1940, a thousand silver coins fell on the Soviet Union. Okay, how do you say that witchcraft isn't real? Right, hearing right. this, Like, those are plagues. Those are things sent by witches. Well, and it kind of makes you think about some of these historical, like, mystical stories in a different context, right? Like, of course, if you don't have a firm grasp on, you know, whatever, you're going to be like, it's fucking raining frogs. I am moving. Just like the guy next door that's like, I'm fucking moving to Mars. Why is it raining fish on my lawn? This is bad juju. But also, this is kind of funny. It rained golf balls once in Florida. Why? Atmospheric scientists believe that water spouts, small tornadoes that form over water, can lift small animals from the water and into the air. They can then carry them long distances and drop them somewhere else. Some tornadoes have been known to even suck up entire ponds. And speaking of when it rained frogs on Napoleon's army, I have a, a historic illustration of that event. Oh my goodness. My my jaw's on the floor, guys. So Allie is showing me one of those uh one of those black and white sort of drawings um of literally like it looks like medieval. I mean, I know that Napoleon yeah. was not medieval, but it looks like a medieval wood carving type thing. It's showing like a a, a church with a steeple and like a hilly meadow, and then there's clouds and there's literally toads. Falling all over the place. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, thirty toads in this particular uh, illustration that are falling down. We know that it has happened throughout history. We know that it continues to happen. Scientists have figured out that there's these water spouts that if like if all the conditions are perfect, it just sucks up whatever's underneath it, kind of like a tornado over a body of water, and it can dump it miles and miles away. So... 
that might make us think that maybe there's some truth to the theory. Maybe it wasn't jellyfish, but maybe it was something else that got sucked up and then kind of mangled in the sky. So Mm. it was just like a paste or a slurry and then fell down over the town. But that still doesn't really answer what it could have been. So now we get to theory number three, star jelly. Natalia, have you ever heard of star jelly? No. This is actually a fucking awesome concept. I'm not going to go super into depth on it because I actually think it goes along with a different topic that I already have planned for a future episode. But the TLDR of star jelly, which is the fucking sickest name ever, it's also called astral jelly. It's a gelatinous substance sometimes found on on grass or even on branches of trees. According to folklore, it is deposited on Earth during meteor showers. It is described as a translucent or grayish-white gelatin that tends to evaporate shortly after having fallen. Explanations have ranged from it being the remains of frogs, toads, or worms to the byproducts of a cyanobacteria. Reports of the substance date back to the 14th century and has continued into present day. And there are tons of like really cool fucking woo-woo, like mystical theories on what this could be. So that's why I don't want to go super in-depth. But because it continues to happen even today, we actually have some photos. (gasps) This is crazy. I've never heard of this before. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's weird. Yeah. So Allie is showing me a picture of the ground. There's grass on it. And then there's, yeah, it looks like sort of like gelatinous hail. Yeah. Almost. It looks similar to how the Oakville Blobs was described. Yeah, it does. And then there's a picture of what looks like a Canadian coin or something next to it to show how big it is. So if I'm to believe that that coin is the size of a a quarter, this thing is probably five to six times larger than a quarter, but it's comprised of smaller little blobs. Yeah. So the points against this the Oakville blobs being this mystical astral jelly or star jelly, is that star jelly seems to be more solid and more opaque and like a little bit larger than what the Oakville blobs were described as. Yeah, it looks like... It doesn't look as transparent. Right. But if we want to side with like a more mystical theory, then maybe this is some sort of astral jelly that fell from the heavens as a byproduct of some sort of meteor shower, which meteor showers are known to happen over Washington in August. Mm -hmm. It does happen from time to time. We don't have any records showing that there was one during the time of the Oakville blobs, but also this is pre-internet days. So it's hard to like know if that happened or not. What if it's like vaginal discharge because God was a woman? Uh. I was actually going to say in the photo dump, like, yes, I know what this looks like. Don't get us flagged. Yeah, it looks like uh, some sort of bodily fluids. It looks like it could be some sort of jizz concoction or also vaginal discharge. Display. Which is also jizz. <laughs> it's look, it's gender neutral jizz. Right. Or wait, do you call female discharge jizz? Yeah. Really? Splooge jizz. <gasps> Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Because I've always thought that jizz and splooge were about semen. I always call it jizz. Sound off in the comments right now. Is jizz and splooge... uh, Gender specific? Yeah. I don't think so. I always... I have always called it jizz. This is so crazy to me. This is like hearing someone say that like they refer to a door as a window. (laughs) Because I, I... Like my whole life, I just... 
have only heard it referred to as coming as as uh, semen. I don't know. I don't know. You guys sound off in the comments at let's get haunted, but also censor the words so that we don't get our <laughs> photo dump pulled because Instagram and its AI bots think I've actually posted a photo of jizz. Yeah, just say it's not gender specific or it is gender specific. Perfect. Love yeah. that. And if it is gender specific, tell me what you call female jizz. I've always just called it jizz. Theory number four. So we've made it past star jelly aka heaven's jizz we've made it past um it being maybe like human excrement from an airplane we've made it past jellyfish or some other animal being blown up by the military by accident and raining down we've made it past a water spout that picked up something and mashed it around and dropped it so now we get to theory number four could it be that the government tried to make it rain and fucked up now Weather control? So this sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory, but according to Smithsonian Magazine in an article entitled When the U.S. Government Tried to Make It Rain by Exploding Dynamite in the Sky by Katie Najembatum, this actually has happened before. And... It's happened all over the world. Like back in the day when people when countries were going through droughts, the government was like, you know what? We can we have this technology. We're smart. Maybe we can just like force the clouds to make it rain. And what they discovered is that that's how you get acid rain. And that's how you get like uh, not happy fun times for the people below the rain. So in this particular article, it talks about a time that the U.S. government tried to make this happen in 1891. It says, quote, the skies around Midland, Texas, lit up and thundered with the brilliance and cacophony of military-grade explosions. But it was far from a wartime scene, as on August 17, 1891, a group of scientists were setting off explosives in the first government-funded rain-making experiments. Robert G. Dyrenforth had traveled by train from Washington, D.C. to a Texas cattle ranch in Texas with a group of other rain-making enthusiasts. <laughs> They arrived armed with dynamite, kites, and balloons, the key ingredients that were thought to be necessary for rainmaking. Following the tenets of the concussion theory of weather modification, which suggested that clouds can be compelled to produce rain as a result of agitation from loud noise, the rainmakers prepared their explosives for detonation. I can see why they would think that because thunder is like this loud sort of boom explosion and then that seems to be followed by rain. So perhaps in their, you know, 1800s brain, they're like, yeah, this makes sense. Also, at that time, it's like, I want gold. Blow up the ground. The Blow gold up comes. the moon. Yeah, exactly. Who gives a shit? We have the technology. Don't think about consequences. Blow up the sky. It'll make rain. The article goes on to say, the team's first experiment took place at what they called Sea Ranch on land near Midland that belonged to Chicago meatpacking tycoon Nelson Morris. Twelve hours after they set off the initial round of explosives, rain did begin to fall, writes James Fleming in Fixing the Sky, the checkered history of weather and climate control. And even though the collected rainfall at the ranch was minimal, this group of people accepted it as evidence of success. They set off the next round of explosives, 156 pounds of Rackarock, on August 21st, just as a norther or a precipitation-inducing cold front moved through the area. When mist appeared hours after the explosion stopped, the group again took it as a sign of success. Hmm. The final experiment at the ranch occurred on August 25th. After firing explosions throughout the day, Dyronforth reported rainfall around 3 a.m. 
I was awakened by a violent thunder, he wrote, which was accompanied by vivid lightning and a heavy rainstorm was seen to the north. That is, in the direction toward which the surface wind had steadily blown during the firing, and hence the direction in which the shocks of the explosion were chiefly carried. Despite these comments, no one measured the rain, and observers later reported that it was nothing but a sprinkle. The prevailing view, even among the officials at the newly created U.S. Weather Bureau, was that there was not credible scientific basis for increasing rain from these clouds by using explosive devices. And though the concussion theory has fallen out of fashion, the science behind rainmaking continues to evolve. Today, scientists studying weather modification focus their sights on cloud seeding or the process of inserting silver iodide crystals to make ice droplets in the clouds clump together and fall from the sky as precipitation. Okay, who is like standing up for clouds though? Because that is so invasive and um, I don't think that th- that's like problematic behavior. Yeah. Like w- clouds are just, you know, there to make it rain for us. You know, who's, you're right. Who's looking out for the clouds? Let's start a cloud union. Fucking uh, organize and pick it and say no more clouds until you guys stop seeding us against our will. So you may be asking yourself, what is cloud seeding? According to DRI.edu, clouds are made up of tiny water droplets or ice crystals that form when water vapor in the atmosphere cools and condenses around tiny particles of dust or salt floating in the atmosphere. Cloud seeding is a weather modification technique that improves the cloud's ability to produce rain or snow by introducing tiny ice nuclei into certain types of sub-freezing clouds. So in theory, if you seed a cloud, it should induce rain, The problem is that weather modification is really controversial because throughout history, it's actually been thought to be more detrimental and maybe not even work at all. Mm -hmm. And there have been examples, like I said, of accidentally acid rain happening that just like kills everything it touches. Like, yes, it's technically raining, but it's not raining water. So like, why are we even doing it? Mm -hmm. But in this theory... People think that perhaps the U.S. government was flying all of these airplanes and conducting and conducting, quote unquote, bombing experiments because they were throwing dynamite up into the sky, like in this weird 1800s weather experiment. Or maybe they were throwing some new type of experimental chemical into the clouds in order to induce rain. And what they actually did was create some sort of weird like bioweapon. That makes a lot of sense to me. Or perhaps whatever they were exploding wasn't like a typical bomb. It was like some sort of bioweapon bomb. Yeah. You know, like who knows? They made the newest technology for bombs and maybe it's like requires that there's a human shit in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, who's to fucking say? Because clearly there's some sort of uh, government cover up happening. Right. Because when that one guy asked his superior, like, hey, where'd the sample go? He was like, don't ask questions. Yeah, it's better if you just fucking let it go and live your life and don't ask me anymore. And that leads us perfectly into theory number five, a government biological warfare experiment. Natalia, I'm going to play one more clip for you from the Unsolved Mysteries episode on the Oakville Blobs, and I want you to hear what citizens living in the area during this period of time witnessed. We had a significant amount of military aircraft flying over the home uh, prior to this happening. Every day almost, uh, slow flying bombers, helicopters, all black in color. And uh, we kind of thought maybe it might have come from them. 
They let off things in the air all the time here. Testing, you know, there's testing done all over the place. There's a lot of places you can't go into. Maybe we were a biological experiment of some kind, a small one, maybe just to get people a little bit sick to find out, say, if an enemy did come over here with a biological bomb or something and dropped it. Um, maybe just a test run to see how, to, how it would, what would happen. So, Natalia, what do you think of that clip before I continue on in this theory? Well, yeah, the clip the clip kind of makes it seem very plausible that there could be some sort of military testing going on. It makes a lot of sense why the government is kind of covering it up, because that to me is the piece that's missing here. Yeah, like what is the purpose of destroying the records of this material? What is the purpose of destroying the material itself and saying you misplaced it? And I don't think Mike McDowell would lie about like my superior told me to stop asking about it. Like he doesn't have anything to gain from this. He wasn't paid for any of the interviews he did. Mm -hmm. And he only came out about it after he retired. I just really don't think it's far-fetched at all to think that the government experiments on civilians Um, I don't think it's as black and white as like, hey, let's go uh, experiment on these civilians. I think it could have been a mistake. Yeah. Like they were like, didn't realize that this sort of fallout was happening to the extent that it was because like you said, there wasn't social media. So maybe a couple days later or maybe like that afternoon, they're like, hey, by the way, some lady came into the hospital and she said she was feeling sick and she brought in like a gelatinous substance. Uh, do you guys know about that? And like, how would they know about that? Yeah. Until, you know, like then they're then they're like, oh, shit, maybe the stuff that we're doing is like raining down some jelly. Oh, well, that's just one lady. Who cares? Let's keep doing it. You know, yeah. it's not my fault. Uh, and then uh, over time, because there's no social media, you you have all these people coming forward and being like, oh, that happened to me. That happened to me. And then a story is made. But like you were saying in the beginning, like for the first few weeks, something's happening. Everyone's just trying to figure it out. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe we can relate to that with COVID even, you know, for the first few weeks, we're like, is it a cold? Is it anything? Is Mm -hmm. it going to come here? Is it going to shut down our economy? Like you literally have no idea. And now we have the benefit of hindsight and we can be like, oh, of course it was a pandemic. But at the time, you really don't know what's going on. Now, adding credence to this theory microbiologist Mike McDowell, who originally examined the sample while working at the Washington State Department of Health, told National Geographic the following in an interview, quote, this material, and I have no proof one way or the other, I believe was manufactured by someone for some purpose. And for some reason, Oakville was chosen as the testing site. This may seem like a far-fetched conspiracy theory, But it actually wouldn't be the first time that the U.S. government did something like this to its own citizens. Yeah, MKUltra. Natalia, have you ever heard of Operation Sea Spray? No, sounds gross. According to Wikipedia, Operation Sea Spray was a 1950 U.S. Navy secret biological warfare experiment in which Serratia marcescens and Baxelius globigli, globigi, Bacteria were sprayed over the San Francisco Bay Area in California in order to determine how vulnerable a city like San Francisco may be to a bioweapon attack. It started on September 20th, 1950, and continued on for seven days until September 27th. And during this time, the U.S. Navy released these two types of bacteria from a ship off the shore of San Francisco, believing them to be harmless to humans. 
Based on results from monitoring equipment at 43 locations around the city, the Army determined that San Francisco had received enough of a dose for nearly all of the city's 800,000 residents to inhale at least 5,000 of the particles each. On October 11, 1950, so about a month after this happened, 11 residents were checked into Stanford Hospital for very rare and very serious urinary tract infections. Although 10 residents recovered, one patient, Edward J. Nevin, died three weeks later from this infection. Cases of pneumonia in San Francisco also increased after this bacteria was released. The bacterium was also combined with phenol and an anthrax stimulant and sprayed across South Dorset by U.S. and U.K. military scientists as part of the DICE trials that ran from 1971 to 1975. In 1977, the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Health and Scientific Research held a series of hearings at which the U.S. Army finally disclosed the existence of these tests, and it led to a lawsuit where Nevin's surviving family members filed a suit um, alleging negligence and responsibility for the death of their loved one. The lower court ended up ruling against them. They went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ended up also ruling against them. But basically, my point is, Operation Sea Spray was where they literally released bacteria onto the city of San Francisco mm -hmm. to just, like, see what would happen. We right. don't think it's going to be any problem. But then all of a sudden, there's this spike in weird urinary tract infections and spike in weird respiratory tract infections. And of course, the government's like, there's no evidence it's from us. And, you know, we're not going to release any documents on it. We're going to tell you it happened years later, but we're not going to say too much about it because we don't want to be held liable. So my point is that this shit does happen in the U.S. I, uh, I definitely think it, that's very, very plausible that this could have just been a test done on citizens to sort of test like biochemical warfare or test the resilience to it. Right. And especially if we believe the analysis of those different labs who found these two bacterias. Well, we already know the U.S. has done that before in the past. They have yeah. sprayed bacteria over an entire town. Yeah. So maybe they chose Oakville because it's so small and mm -hmm. they figured nobody's going to give a shit. This is and right. They're going to like they're like, oh, these people, pfft. They're going to have a parade. They're going to name a drink after yeah. us. They're the perfect candidates. Exactly. In another article for theconversation.com, author Michelle Bentley writes about more fucked up examples of the U.S. testing bioweapons on its own citizens. The title of this article is, The U.S. has a history of testing biological weapons on the public. Were infected ticks used too? And in this article, she talks about a bunch of fucking fucked up government experiments that came out, including Operation Sea Spray. Also in 1951, tests were carried out at the Norfolk Naval Supply Center in Virginia, a massive base that equips the U.S. Navy. Fungal spores were dispersed to see how they would infect workers that were unpacking crates there. Most of the workers were African-American, and the scientists wanted to test a theory that they were more susceptible to fungal disease than Caucasians, so they literally just released spores on them without their knowledge and, like, sat back and were like, let's see what happens and how sick people get. Ugh. In 1997, the National Research Council revealed that the U.S. also used chemicals to test the potential of biological weapons in the 1950s. Zinc cadmium sulfide was dispersed by planes and sprayed over a number of cities, including St. Louis in Missouri and Minneapolis in Minnesota. 
These cities were chosen because they were deemed to be similar to Soviet targets, such as Moscow, in terms of terrain, weather, and population. The council concluded that no one was hurt and that the level of chemical used was not harmful. But in 2012, sociology professor Lisa Martino-Taylor claimed that there was a spike in cancer rates that could be connected back to the chemicals, which she alleges were radioactive. There was also a massive increase in testing in 1962 called Project 112. The project expanded bioweapons testing and pumped new funds into research. One of the more controversial tests took place in 1966 on the New York subway when scientists filled light bulbs with bacteria and then smashed them open on the subway tracks. The bacteria traveled for miles around the subway system, being breathed in by thousands of civilians and covering their clothes. In 2008, the U.S. Government Accountability Office acknowledged that tens of thousands of civilians might have been exposed to biological agents thanks to Project 112 and other tests. This article was published in 2019. There's a new hypothesis and probe that's being investigated right now about whether or not the U.S. released ticks infected with Lyme disease into the public to text to test uh, for biowarfare. This is a controversial episode. Yes. So my point is, seems like it could have been a bioweapon. The very last theory, theory number six, this final theory says either a biotech company or the U.S. government sprayed a test product for plant pathogens meant for agricultural testing, but overshot their target and accidentally sprayed the town. This theory is a weird one, and it took me a while to understand it, so bear with me here. But basically, YouTuber Barely Sociable uploaded a YouTube video to his channel regarding the Oakville incident in 2020. In his video, he sent all of the publicly available information regarding the Oakville blobs to a scientist who made notes in a Google Doc and sent them back to the YouTuber. So this is what the scientist who works as a microbiologist mm -hmm. said to Barely Sociable. This scientist thinks that a super absorbent polymer prepared from water-soluble polymers but have cross-linking structures which render the polymers insoluble were basically like filled with bacteria. So it's like a gel matrix that were filled with bacteria that was going to be transported and sprayed to test how it would affect plants. When in contact with water, the polymer will begin polymerizing via cross-linking agents. It is not super likely that this exact polymer was used, but something of the sort is for reasons I will explain further below, writes the microbiologist. And then he has bullet points. The blob, what was found? White blood cells were found. This is a weird occurrence, but it was only found by one of the testing agencies and is not consistent with the other two claims, so perhaps we can eliminate it. Cells with no nuclei. Cells with no nuclei are likely to be prokaryotes, bacteria and archaea. Mark Osweiler. Mark Osweiler found two bacteria, Pseudomonas fluorescence. It's a gamoproteobacteria commonly found in soil and water looked into as a biocontrol property which protects plant roots from fusarium and pythium parasitic fungi. Enterobacter cloquet, a gamoprotobacteria commonly found in the gut flora of humans, but has also been found to play a role in the biological control of plant diseases. Conclusions. 
plant perspective, since the only really two common uses I've seen for both species of bacteria has something to do with being a biocontrol agent for plant pathogens, it's likely that a private plant biotech company was looking into how to use a co-culture or cell culture containing two or more species that would be effective at killing off pathogens. I will be referring to this co-culture as a product for a business. Why the blob? If the product is being sprayed on agriculture from high altitudes, there's a likelihood not all species will fully survive the impact. Since pea fluorescence is commonly found in soil and water, it would be fine. However, for species such as E. cloquet, which is commonly in the gut, this may need some sort of protectant. This is where the polymer comes in. Polymer substance. Since we want all these species to survive the impact, they likely used a water-soluble polymer like the one in the patent I read at the beginning. The reason why is to protect their co-culture and not destroy the plants. Pathological impact slash kittens dying. It may be likely that whatever chemicals used or polymer used inside the product could be poisonous to humans. Bacterial species. They're also encasing the two biocontrol species and probably more, which are meant to kill pathogens. If animals are ingesting these species, they could be competing slash attacking their gut flora or gut, or gut microbes or triggering an immune response. P. fluorescence has been known to cause infection in immunocompromised patients. E. cloquet, some strains have caused or been involved with respiratory tract infections in immunocompromised patients. These two species would have to be ingested or enter into an orifice in order to cause an infection. Components of the blob. Whatever was in the blob, chemically, could have also triggered an immune response in the townspeople. Their flu-like symptoms in their body reacting to exposure that made it inside their body. There are chemicals that can easily be absorbed into the skin and take certain compounds with them into the bloodstream, such as DMSO, a commonly, which is commonly used as a topical analgestic that will penetrate the skin and bring compounds through biological tissues. Whatever else in the blob could have been absorbed through the skin and elicited an immune response in humans. It could also be toxic to animals. Conclusion. In my opinion, the Oakville blobs were likely a biotech company or the government testing a product, the polymer plus biocontrol microbes, on agriculture against plant pathogens. They accidentally somehow sprayed the town. The product ended up being possibly toxic to humans, also they had no idea whatever the fuck was up, did not want the press to know about it, and could have paid out individuals to lose the samples like Mike may also be why no one has pictures because they are not allowed to release them. Who knows? So what do you think of this theory? This is That was the final theory. I mean, I didn't have the words to say all of that stuff, but all of it made sense to me. And that's like, I feel like that theory makes the most sense because it's kind of combination of everything, right? Like it's like a secret sort of mission that happened that went awry. Um, and it's also perhaps the government is covering it up, you know, in some capacity because or perhaps this private firm that they were talking about um, isn't involved with the government. But I don't know. I kind of feel like the government is hand in hand with like evil startup companies, yeah. you know, they <laughs> right. go together to me. And also, I think like alternatively if the government knew that this was going on and didn't stop anything you know or didn't like help i don't know then it's also fucked up well and in order to believe that theory you also have to believe that the human white blood cells found in the substance were just a lab error 
That's something that this scientist, uh, this microbiologist says in his report. Like, I'm discounting the white human blood cell, the human white blood cells that were found at the hospital because that's the only time that was ever found is when the substance was looked at under a microscope at the hospital. Right. And there's probably white blood cells all over the hospital because there's sick people everywhere. Right. But the argument is that why would there be a white blood cell in this substance when white blood cells can't survive outside of the body? So... That was like the weird thing that the lab tech saw where she was like, this makes no sense. Yeah. Like she, it was just her fault. Yeah. Maybe she misinterpreted it. Right. Right. So this microbiologist says in order to believe his theory, we need to say that the human white blood cells were never in the sample, that this was just some weird red herring that only shows up once. I feel like the scientist, while he means well, or they mean well, they're just getting a little too technical. I like the theory where we were like blowing up the rain clouds. Right. Seeding. Yeah. 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 Seeding clouds. Well, let me read my sources for this episode before I get your final thoughts. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, an article published to KXRO, KXRO News Radio called 20 Years Later, The Oakville Blob. Oakville celebrates independence with parade and reenactment of horseback bank robbery by Kimberly Mason for The Chronicle. Unsolved Mysteries, Season 5, Episode 20. You can watch the full episode on YouTube. Unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com forward slash wiki forward slash Oakville underscore blobs. The Blobs That Fell From the Sky by Nicole Henley for medium.com. A YouTube video uploaded December 11th, 2020 to the channel Slightly Sociable entitled The Oakville Incident, Real Mysteries. The U.S. has a history of testing biological weapons on the public. Were infected ticks used too? By Michelle Bentley for TheConversation.com. The Day It Rained Fish in Providence by the New England Historical Society. Strange Rain, Why Fish, Frogs, and Golf Balls Fell from the Sky by Sarah Zielinski for Smithsonian Magazine. Natalia, what are your final thoughts on this episode? Great episode. I think that um, this is like a very well-documented case where clearly there's a major cover-up going on. I mean, the scale that that this, this is like a too large of a scale to be a prank or to belong to anything other than like the government, in my opinion, or uh, yeah, so... I it's a great story and there's lots to think about here um what do you think about the theory of astral jelly I was actually just thinking about that you know that that I mean needs its own episode like you were saying because I've never seen that and the explanation is not satisfying yeah Yeah. what do you mean it's fucking mashed up worms and mashed up toads falling from the sky another theory was like it's from when female toads their reproductive organs get mashed up. I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? And it only shows up during meteor showers, you the bitch. Witch, yeah. Like, that, <laughs> that to me sounds like undiagnosed witchcraft, though. Because, yeah. like, when are witches doing witch things at during major cosmic events? Yeah. And when is a major cosmic event happening? A meteor shower. Yeah. And that's all I need to say. What's your favorite theory out of all of them? Not necessarily the most likely, but just like whatever your favorite is. I like the cloud seeding. Kind of funny. Like late 1800s, people are just throwing kites and dynamite up into the sky and seeing what happens. And they're like, there's a mist. That must mean it's going to rain. Right. I mean, they were just so hands on then. They were like, you're sick. Okay, let's drain your blood. Let's put a leech on your penis and (laughs) and also cut your brain out of your head because it's clearly making you crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They were just so 
hands-on and I do love that about them where they're like we can just blow up a mountain there's gonna be gold inside and then we're good you yeah know? yeah the, uh, so I would say that's probably my favorite theory the seeding of the clouds have you ever seen this unsolved mysteries episode no that talked about this you've never seen it no and I've never heard of this either oh I love that okay cool yeah hopefully this was entertaining for you guys it is a pretty popular unsolved mysteries episode but it's from the 90s so I don't know who's gonna have seen it and who's not gonna have seen it hopefully even if you had already heard of this topic maybe I brought something new to the conversation and if not then I hope you at least enjoyed the ride yeah, I've never heard of it. I'm really interested. If you guys have ever seen Astral Jelly, let us know. And uh, if you think Jizz is uh, semen, also let us know. And if you think that it's, um, you know, Jizz from the aliens, maybe that's another theory. Yeah. Are the Oakville Blobs, was there like an alien orgy flying over right. this town for three weeks straight and six times they had to dump their tank full of alien Jizz? over yeah, this town right who can ever say no one not us not us not us natalia would you like to do our sign off brb gonna go collect every sample that i've ever sent a lab and make a backup copy somewhere safe and secure that the government doesn't know about bye, bye. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.